All right, I'm going to pray real quick. Father, uh, today, God, we, we really want to honor your son. God, we love you. We want to, uh, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit to magnify him and to make him glorious and uh, that you would put in us the same hope that was in the prophets, the patriarchs, and the apostles about the coming of your son and his uh, his soon coming in the sky, Lord. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen. Okay, uh, so we're at uh, week four. It's really session seven. And uh, so this week we're going to tackle a uh, continuance of messianic expectation and just really... Um, diving into the issue of messianic expectation and and if you've never heard the phrase it's a it just means excuse me what was expected in the messiah so um well that that first verse is a good example so the record of the genealogy of Jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham so this is the way the new testament starts and um, most of you probably know this, but just in case you don't, whenever you read in the New Testament, it says the word Messiah. That is simply a transliteration of a Hebrew word, um, or it's the uh, it's not a transliteration. Sorry, it is it is actually a translation of the Greek word for or uh, for a Hebrew word that means the Anointed One, and the Anointed One is the Mashiach. And uh, that's a term that was uh, developed in um, around the life of David, around his around that time frame. And the Mashiach, the Anointed One, was not randomly or arbitrarily anointed because he was really powerful. You weren't anointed to be powerful in the Bible. The anointing wasn't something that you received so that you would have favor or that you would have lots of miracles, the anointing was for a task. And so like David and the kings, they were anointed for what? To be king. And so there was the anointed one. And his name was the Messiah, the Mashiach. And the Greek translation of that is Christos. means anointed. So he is the Christos, he is the anointed one. So when you read Christ in the Bible, um, that's what it's referencing every time. But I'll go into that in a second. So uh, the New Testament begins with the acknowledgement of messianic expectation by stating that the one promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and... Psalm 2 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 and throughout, the one promise to David and the one promise to Abraham as their descendant came to the earth born of a woman. So it's the acknowledgement that Jesus, the Messiah, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham, the one promised to them that was going to come from their line, he is the Christ. He is the one. Uh, thus, 
the Jewish audience of Matthew hears that first sentence and they feel reaffirmed in their belief or the messianic expectation that they have. So the New Testament starts off reaffirming Old Testament Christology is what it's called. That's the, that's the introduction to the New Testament. So, for the most part, modern Christian theology, assuming a Platonic cosmology, is based largely upon a non-existent <laughs> verse in the Bible. And it sounds kind of funny, but it really is. You have more based on the assumption of a, of a non-existent verse in Christian theology right now than, than nearly any other verse in the Bible. And most modern teachings regard, uh, regarding salvation, eschatology, the kingdom, and the Christ all assume a passage in the scripture where Jesus, and presumably reaffirmed by Paul and the other disciples, corrects the foolish Jews for their naive expectation of him. You can't make it through a commentary on the Gospels or the life of Christ without every other verse meaning Jesus, you know, slapping his forehead and going, What's wrong with you, ignorant Jewish people, that you thought that I was actually going to do exactly what my father said I was going to do? And it's like the backdrop for almost all New Testament interpretation is that Jesus came... And went, you guys totally didn't understand anything. And he totally redefined Christology and messianic expectation. That's not true. The problem, of course, is that that passage doesn't exist. Because the New Testament as a whole is built on the assumption of the Old Testament messianic expectation. Okay? The New Testament as a whole is built on the assumption that those things are true. The alteration, and thus the perversion of the expectation, is the primary source of confusion as to why we have 38,000 plus denominations within Protestantism, last I checked, which was at the time of the writing of these notes. So, 38,000 plus, really, really the primary source of confusion is the assumption that all the things that were promised in the Old Testament are now reinterpreted, and they're not real. So, uh, paragraph D, the, fourth, the fact that most members of Christian churches assume the word Christ to be little more than Jesus' surname is primary evidence that something tragic has happened. So, this is pretty much normal. It's most... Believers in America believe that Christ is Jesus' last name. And that is, I mean, it really is. Or, if you theologically have been taught a little bit better than that, the name is meaningless and pointless anyways, and so you say it as if it were his last name. Jesus Christ. And then you read it, and you read, and you don't think Jesus the one who's going to do everything the prophet said you think, Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus Christ. So, few acknowledge the amount of damage done by Gnostic Christianity, the Gnostic Christianity of the modern church, but 
Christoplatonism, that's a term I'll talk about in a second, has not only perverted biblical theology, namely Christology, but biblical hope as a whole is perverted if you change Christology. So there is no sound biblical hope if the, if uh, Christology or Messianic expectation is altered. <clears throat> like, um, uh, let me read these two footnotes just to give some, because uh, that, you know, I, I mentioned Gnostic Christianity of the modern church and Christoplatonism. I just want to clarify. Um, footnote one, pure Gnostic Christology was um, displayed in Docetism, which was an early heresy, that Jesus never had an actual body, but he was incorporeal the whole time, and was only really applied in, in a few limited geographical regions. Docetism didn't take over all of Christendom. You know what I mean? It's not like everybody in the early church believed that Jesus never had a body. That was a con confined heresy. However, the Gnostic Jesus has become widely accepted by the church in the common view that he shed his physical body at the ascension. Thus, it is the Gnostic, immaterial Jesus who has ascended into heaven, in our view. Does that make sense? So that's why I mention Gnostic Christianity, because it really is... If there's not a man in the height of the heavens, it really is Gnostic Christianity. So, um, point two, Christoplatonism. I just want to introduce it. I don't know if I'll use it anymore, but it's helpful. It's a term introduced uh, and used by men like uh, Randy Alcorn. Some of you are familiar with him. He's a real mainstream dude. But it's just a reference to the synthesis of Platonism and Christianity. They happened mostly at the Alexandrian School of Origin in the 3rd century. So, Christoplatonism is just a reference to that. Yes? You're talking about that Gnostic Christology of Jesus not, you know, being corporeal. He didn't yeah. have an actual body. Yeah. When you say that that plays into Christianity, is that some of where they get where when Mary saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, the don't touch me thing? Don't touch me. Yeah, I'm sure okay. it plays into that. As okay. far as from the Docetist point, the Docetism, but, uh, but right now, I mean, we all probably mostly assumed, unless you've really had somebody hit you upside the head with a sledgehammer, that Jesus, we didn't have to see the verse or whatever or hear the teaching but most of us assume that Jesus does not have a body right now. Yeah. Anytime you've ever heard, Jesus just walked into the room, or I just feel Jesus, or I just whatever, assumes that Jesus is not a real person. Or if he is, you are really, really important right now because he cannot be somewhere else. Right. Oh, yeah. So anytime you've heard it and you've just kind of... <laughs> Just kind of, you not so thought twice about it? You just don't even think about it. Yeah, you don't. And so my, my point isn't to make that the whole point of the conversation. I just want to highlight the point that modern Christianity is Gnostic, generally speaking. And that's not the only reason, but that is like the keynote. So while the coming and ministry of Jesus, this is an important point, paragraph E, I can tell because of all the bold and underlines that I put. 
While the coming and ministry of Jesus and the apostles introduced new understanding regarding the manner of inclusion into the promises made to Abraham. So it gave us new understanding about how you get included to the promises, i.e. all who repent and believe, not just the Jewish people, not just Torah compliant. It is essential to note that there was never an alteration in the fundamental hope of the patriarchs. So the hope in the messianic seed who would resurrect and deliver the righteous, restore creation, and crush the wicked has always been the same. That never changed. So like you have in Acts 24, Paul sent before <coughs> Festus and he says, But this I admit to you, because he's being accused by the leaders of the Jews of the, of, the, uh, of the synagogues, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there will certainly be a resurrection both of the, of the righteous and the wicked. So Paul, years after his conversion, not speaking out of the side of his mouth, speaking very honestly, says, I have the same hope as these guys, as the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't misunderstand the promises. That wasn't the point of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees at all. The Pharisees misunderstood their own hearts. This was the problem. The Pharisees thought that their own righteousness was enough to qualify them for the coming kingdom. That was the rebuke on the Pharisees over and over and over again. It was wickedness, not silly Pharisees. I'm not actually going to be who you thought I was. That was not the case. Hey, Amy. So is it, is it more correct to say Jesus the Christ? Jesus the Christ, yeah. Christ. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. You know, it's even worse in Spanish. In Spanish, it's actually written Jesucristo. It's one word. Oh my gosh, that's right. Jesucristo. It's one word. Yeah, it's just Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, it's one word. Um, and then like Second uh, Corinthians 11 says, uh, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, Paul says this, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to the Messiah. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus... Whom, you have not whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear it beautifully. He's like, you guys don't have any discernment, because people come and teach a totally different Jesus, and you accept it. And then First uh, John 2.22, John is directly addressing Gnosticism in this passage, and he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Not, and the point is not that Jesus is the reinterpreted Christ. Who is the liar but the one who says that Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah that they were expecting? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Speaking of the promises from the Old Testament. So the promises aren't redefined and 
Gnosticism was really instrumental early on in redefining messianic hope, all of the promises. And so it became, hey, this is where we're, this is what it's going to look like. Is that it wasn't really that kind of, he's not really that kind of a Christ. He's a different Christ. So that's what we're going to attack today. So thus, the coming of Jesus was understood to be the reassurance of the promises given to the patriarchs and the prophets, not their redefinition. And that that becomes a big, big, big theme because the new covenant simply is actually doesn't serve a different function than all the other covenants. Because in reality... We'll find out in a little bit. None of the covenants have been fulfilled yet. None of them. The reason why the covenants are made over and over and over again is because God made the covenant with Adam that he was going to restore the earth. So why does he have to make it with Abraham and just reiterate the same thing? Because God loves Abraham. And God wants to strengthen Abraham's faith in the assurance that that promise is real. And so God comes again, visits another man, and makes a covenant with him. And says, oh no, I am going to do this, Abraham. And it reassures Abraham and Abraham's seed. And they go, wow, this is real. You're really going to do it. Come on by. And so they really do serve the same function. But we'll, we'll get to that. But so um, in Second Peter, Peter says... We have the prophetic word, that is the prophecies from the patriarchs and the prophets, made more sure now, not less sure, not redefined. It's more sure today because we've seen the Messiah. We should have more hope in the promises of the patriarchs and the prophets, not less hope, not not change it. Okay, continuity of messianic expectation. Yes, sir. Like the idea of teaching our children, ask Jesus in your heart, that's a Gnostic idea then? Because Jesus is an ethereal being that would come in your heart. The, the, the Bible doesn't thing. teach ask Jesus in your heart. Yeah. That, that's a church, that's a Sunday school thing. That is Sunday school. Oh, that's it was a, Gnostic, really. Yeah, no, it really is Gnostic. Gnostic. Ghosts, Jesus to come in your heart. The only question I'm going to ask you, because Christ talks about the spirit of Christ. Right. right. So that might be. So that's there's, there's, there's like two references where the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. But more, more properly, what is affirmed over and over again in the scripture is that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise when you believe. So what would you tell your children then for salvation? What would you teach your children? I'd tell them, repent and believe. Which is just, I mean, it's what the nature of the gospel was. Jesus gave the Great Commission and he said, you know, every time in the different gospels when he tells them to go out, there was no language of telling them to invite me into their right. hearts. <laughs> whoever believes in me has everlasting life, not whoever has me in their heart. Right, and and so it's like you know it's it, it you know whatever it's kind of just it's not helpful terminology, but it's just wrong terminology, and it's and it's really a wrong thought because we just we have a hard time acknowledging him as a real person, and but the Holy Spirit is a spirit. And yeah. The spirit. Yeah. Right? The spirit lives inside of us. Yeah, spirit. So Jesus spirit does live inside of you. Right? Okay. Yeah. 
And okay, let's 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 move on because we could totally Sorry. get derailed. And this, oh, that's a good question. It's not a bad question. I could just I could just get derailed. Okay, continuity continuity of messianic expectations. We're at point two, uh, almost at the bottom of page two. Okay. Uh, the New Testament assumes the same messianic expectation as the Old Testament. Because it assumes the same cosmogenical framework, which means the original perfection of creation, which we hit last week pretty heavy, and the same eschatological conclusion, the restoration, the restoration of that state, it also assumes the same means of accomplishing the Father's good pleasure. So the good pleasure reference is just the, the, the verse right above it. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying that my purpose, i.e. what I showed in the beginning I loved, will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. The Father's good pleasure is creation in right order again. And he says, I will accomplish my good pleasure. But the means, because it assumes the same cosmogenical framework of a good original creation and the same eschatological conclusion, which is the restoration of that creation, the means by which he's going to do it is also the same, which is the Christ. Well, talk about him therefore repent acts 3 19 therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord and that he may send jesus the christ appointed for you the messiah whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things so the christ the reference to that he may send the Christ and the restoration of all things was not introducing two separate subjects. It was, it was a reiteration of the same thing because it's the Christ who restores creation. Can you read that? So when he says that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you yeah. that heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things He's not bringing up two separate subjects. He's simply saying, because the period of restoration is going to come, the Christ is the one who's going to do it, and it's Jesus, therefore repent. So, the, he's simply reiterating that the Christ is the one that's going to restore the earth. That's all he's doing in his presentation. He's reiterating. Does that make sense? So when it says refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, is that God's presence then? From the presence of, of the Lord, of Yahweh, that the, the time of refreshing, that He would send the Messiah, who's going to usher in the time of refreshing, and the time so of the restoration. the restoration. Yeah. So like the literal presence of the Lord. Yeah, well, He or comes from the presence of the Lord, because He is with the Father now, that okay. idea. But yeah. He will actually be present it's true, but the but yeah, what he's referencing is just he will come from the presence. From yeah. 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 But he will be present too. Of course. I was just asking you what 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he will be present for sure. So, Romans 8, verse 20. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him, capital H, who subjected it in hope. Not capital H in the original Greek, but capital H in logic. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that's uh, it, It's really helpful. It's just... A lot of the future nature of what we're going to tackle in the class is just going to be a big pill to swallow. Just all there is to it. But, um, and so what it feels like is if, it's what it's going to feel like over and over again is if you just set all your hope on the day of the Lord and the restoration of the earth, then you'll just collapse here. And what we're going to do is we're going to just go over and over and over the writings of the apostles, of the patriarchs, of David, of the prophets, and realize that it's just the opposite. It really is just the opposite. It's that that hope deferred is what makes the heart sick. And so hope in something that doesn't get deferred. Not make sure everything you hope for happens. Hope in something that's for sure. You know what I mean? Not keep looking for something and strive to make it happen. Like I had a friend who's just ruined his life and came up to see me recently, just ruined his life, his marriage, everything. And, and, uh, and you know, he's like, he's like, I'm just like a mess. I'm trying to figure out what to focus on. I said, well, focus on the one thing that's sure. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have much currency to work with. Just put all of your... <laughs> Put all your chips into the same square and just go after the love of God and His faithfulness and then talk about everything else. It just, it's really logical. But, but it really is, so like Romans 8.23 says, our adoption of sons is future. We have the spirit of adoption, the spirit of promise, which is groaning inside of us. But our adoption is the redemption of our bodies. So the Messiah is the agent by which the Father is going to restore all things and to bring an end to wickedness and tyranny on the earth forever. The gospel spread in the first century is thus the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel is essentially that Jesus of Nazareth was the one, or is the one, whom God appointed to be the the agent of restoration for creation and to establish everlasting righteousness on the planet under God's leadership and thus judging the earth, purging it from wickedness. That is the gospel, essentially. Jesus is the Christ. So in a Jewish culture, that's all you had to do. That's why you read the book of Acts... When Paul would go in to synagogues, all he would say is, Jesus is the Christ. Gospel preached. You know what I mean? 
because they knew everything about the Christ. So, um, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Acts 10, Peter, this is, you know, you know, people have said like a lot of the letters, it's kind of hard to interpret because it's almost like, you know, like Paul, reading Paul's letter to the Romans, it's almost like you're only listening to the one dude talk on the telephone because he's standing in front of you, but somebody else is saying something on the other line and you don't know what he's answering. So it makes it a little challenging. So this is how Peter understands the Great Commission. Okay, so Peter's telling them the story that he rose from the dead. And this is the part where he gets to the Great Commission. And he goes, and he commanded us. Another version says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So this is how Peter interprets the Great, the great Commission. Go into all the earth. All authority has been given to me. What does that mean? It means I'm the Christ. I'm the one who's going to restore the earth and judge the living and the dead. Go into all the earth and tell them to repent and believe on me. Tell them to obey me. And so they go, okay, we're going. This is intense. And Peter says, this is what he commanded us to say. He commanded us to go and to tell everybody that he's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead because the Father appointed him. <coughs> then Revelation 14. I uh, saw another angel flying mid-air and he had the eternal gospel. The gospel. The Evangelium, To proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the gospel. When you got an angel and he ain't afraid of the, doesn't have the fear of man thing going on, he just says it real straight. He's <laughs> not worrying about the offerings and being invited back to the conference. That's basically the way it's preached. So, If they, uh, well, it'll happen. I know. Like, like my son said, like my son said to his grandma, who's really concerned. He did a little speech meet at school, and um, and he was real nervous, and she was trying to comfort him, and she goes, "You did really good." He was like, "I was really nervous," and she goes, "Yeah, no, you did awesome." She goes, "You know what? I think you're going to be speaking in front of thousands of people, sharing the gospel one day." This is like two years ago, I think. He was like six, and he goes. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> then they're probably going to want to kill me. <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> you're like, yeah. That's uh, funny. Okay, so let's go over just this, this section here, and then we're going to take an early break, take a short break, because we're going to hit it hard, second half. So the covenants as the backdrop to all messianic expectations. So basically, the covenants were simply when God would visit particular humans or groups of humans, and he would make a covenant with them 
basically that he was going to do everything he said, but they needed to walk in righteousness, and I'm going to give you different means of walking in righteousness until it actually happens. So we're going to we're going to go talk about that in more detail because that'll seem real confusing just with that statement. But so messianic expectation in the first century, just like it should be now, was based on the covenants which God made to the patriarchs of Israel. So that's where they got messianic expectation. It was from the covenants primarily. And that's why if you get the prophets, and like all the prophets, like it, when you're just getting introduced to the prophets, it looks a lot like they're just having these crazy ecstatic experiences and they're just like coming out with this just amazing revelation. And they're not, almost at all. All the prophets are doing is they're just referencing the law. They're just referencing Deuteronomy 28 through 32, most of their ministry is. And just going, um, remember God said that he was going to do all those things and bless us, to bring the blessing on the day of the Lord. But if we didn't continue in righteousness, then we're going to be captured by another nation. Remember when he said that in Deuteronomy? Well, he just visited me and told me that that's happening now. That's basically what almost all of the prophetic writings are. It's just prophetic interpretations of the Torah. Yeah. Over and over and over again, they're just referencing the Torah. Not coming up with lots of new information. So, any references to promises in the New Testament presupposes that the biblical backbone of the whole narrative, which is the covenants, are known and understood by the audience. There is no reference to arbitrary promises in the Bible at all. There is not one time where it says promises and it just means anything the Lord visited you and told you in your prayer time. Every reference to the promises in the New Testament are a reference to the promises made in the covenants. Always. Not that Jesus doesn't speak to us. That's not what I'm talking about. The beginning of the covenants was God's covenant to creation. We talked about that last week. This covenant is not a symbolic covenant, but an actual binding agreement which God made with His creation. Thus, God's faithfulness to creation as a whole is the context from which all of the covenants are interpreted. So, that's why when you have in Jeremiah 33, verse 20 and 21, it says, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the night and day will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, which is the Messiah. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers can be broken. So God anchors the covenant with David and Levitical priests, which is the covenant with Moses, to the original covenant with creation. And so the only way he promises that that's really going to happen is if we actually believe that the covenant with creation is going to happen. My covenant I will not violate, Psalm 89. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I utter, nor will I alter. I mean, if we could just understand this phrase right here, as far as New Testament hermeneutic, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. I'm not going to change it one day to mean something else. Once I have sworn in my holiness, and I will not lie to David, 
his seed or his descendant, it's singular, will endure forever and his throne as the sun. So as long as the Messiah's throne is going to last, the sun will be here. It will be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. So the lack of context for the covenants has resulted in a liberal reinterpretation of the covenants as well as the context within which they were all given. All of the biblical covenants look to the messianic kingdom. Which is simply the restoration of the original Adamic kingdom. So you have in Acts 3 that when he says that he may send the Christ and the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. So it's from the very beginning when they began speaking about it. It was, uh, it was in that context that they understand the Christ. But one who, but one is testified somewhere and he, and he just quotes Psalm 8 here. And so we'll go back and forth between the Greek uh, and the Hebrew 2, which is in Greek, and the, and the Hebrew version from Psalm 8. But he says, what is man that you remember him or the son of man? And I believe that that first man is the Enosh. It's the, it's the different word for man, um, which means mortal. Uh, what is man that you remember him or the son of man in Hebrew that's literally the son of Adam that you are concerned about him you have made him the son of Adam you've made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. I.e. to Jesus, who is the son of Adam. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Key part of understanding the passage. Now, not all things are subject to Jesus. Okay, and it's not, never mind. We'll get to that next week. The rest of the covenants are simply reaffirmations of this original covenant with Adam. And they simply serve to reinforce the certainty of God's covenant to restore the Adamic covenant within the context of a restored creation as a whole. So that's why the other covenants were made. It's to reaffirm to individuals and to groups of people that the restoration of creation and of the original Adamic order is absolutely certain. And he reaffirms it with several different generations to confirm that it's for sure true and it's going to happen. Thus, none of the covenants have been fulfilled, but they await their fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah in the clouds. So go to the diagram real quick. And this is... And then we'll take a break right after this. So... I stole part of the idea for this from my friend John Harrigan, but this is a. Uh, but basically, the diagram is simply this. This really is how it works. This is really a good way to view it all being played out. Is that you have at the beginning you have the earth and a human reigning over the works of his hands, Psalm eight. 
Then you have God reigning in the height of the heavens. Is that that other looking H? That's heaven. Yeah, the other looking H is actually a throne. Oh, okay. Those are little chairs. Chair. I like one's a square H. Yeah, no, these are squares. <laughs> these are uh, these are seats. Those are chairs. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you have the human chair, the human throne on the bottom. Okay. In the beginning, where you had Adam ruling over the works of his hands. Then you had God reigning in the height of the heavens over all of creation. And then you have sin entering the equation and you just follow the timeline. And this is what they understand. This is how they view reality. That So he visits Adam after the sin and he makes a promise and he gives him grace to walk in righteousness for the rest of his days. Because he strengthens him with the promise of its assurance. And so Adam walks in righteousness for the rest of his days because he has the present tense promise that this is really going to happen. And Adam, I don't just generally care about creation. I care about you. You walk in righteousness, Adam. I care that when I restore the earth and eradicate wickedness, that you're not removed from the earth, Adam. I care that I raise you up on the day of the Lord. And likewise, he comes to Noah. And he visits Noah. And it's the same thing. It's not a brand new covenant in the Noahic covenant. It's the same thing. And then he visits Abram. And it's not a new deal he's giving Abram. He's giving him a little bit more information to continue to reaffirm his faith. But like the scripture's clear if you read Romans 11 or uh, Hebrews 11 verse 9 Abram did not interpret that the promise of his seed living in the land that that was going to be anything that he saw in his lifetime. It's absolutely clear. It says that by faith uh, I think it's Hebrews 11 verse 9 by faith Abraham lived as a sojourner and a stranger in the land of promise, lived there pitching a tent with Isaac and Jacob, and then leaving because he was looking for a city that had foundations. So he's looking for the new Jerusalem. He's not looking. So in other words, the way that we've interpreted the, typically the promise to Abraham is interpreted is that it was either talking about the cross or is either talking about that Israel would inhabit the land that's not how Abraham interpreted the promise Abraham simply went there in obedience and God took him into the land and visited him there and then reaffirmed him in faith and belief in the day of the Lord and the restoration of all things so that he would have the grace to persevere during his lifetime and then, Abra- and then you have Moses, the same deal. It's all the same. And we're going to go over all the covenants here in a second. It's He gives him the same hope, and then he gives David the same hope. And they're all hoping in this, the coming of the seed, the crushing of the serpent, and the restoration, uh, and the kingdom of the righteous seed. That's what all of them interpret all the promises to be. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and we'll work through... All that stuff.